0: Welcome to Unpolished Recovery. My name is Trey. Most stories of recovery start with how bad addiction was, how they entered recovery, and how great life is now. That's a polished story.
1: My name's Chris. I'm your co-host of Unpolished Recovery. Uh, Today, our guest is named Caitlin. Uh, If it's okay, Caitlin, I'm going to kind of just give a basic introduction that uh, Caitlin is a graduate of Restoration House. Uh, She actually worked full-time for the program for a period of time and then uh, moved on to her own place and, uh, but she still stays connected so when we were trying to find guests for this to, uh, uh, stories about experience, strength, and hope of course your name came to mind and so you know just to get started off can you kinda of tell us a little bit about yourself now, your life today, who is Caitlin today?
2: So I'm married um, I work at Cumberland Heights Treatment Facility um, I do a lot of sponsoring. Um, I love to crochet and fishing when it's not five a.m. in the morning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, so how long ha- uh, how long ago was it that you graduated Restoration House?
2: Um, I graduated in 2020. So three three,
1: three years. years. Uh, how long did you stay on site? Now, you know, I've mentioned before in other episodes, the program itself is a, a six-month program. However, we have an alumni program. Most people aren't ready to transition on their own. And, and you were one of those people that felt the, the same for you, that mm-hmm. you, you needed more time. Uh, so how long total would you say you spent uh, as a, as a uh, resident at Restoration House? Three years. Three years, and then it's been three years. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so and you've been clean and sober for how long?
2: Um, four years, October the 2nd of this year.
1: Okay. So coming up on a sobriety birthday. Mm-hmm. So now at, with Restoration House, we do, you know, y- you know a lot about the program going through it, working. But a lot of the people that come to our program come from incarceration, legal trouble, uh, which is for most w- when your primary way of dealing with, with uh, issues in your life is drugs uh, since it's illegal, you're destined to have, you know, legal trouble, but that wasn't the case with you. Uh, you, um, if I, if I remember correctly, you went through treatment, then you come to restoration house. So, uh, just, um, as far as like introduction to drugs and alcohol, you know, when was the first time that you experienced, you know, drugs or alcohol?
2: Um, so the first time that I experienced it would be, um, whenever I broke my arm, um, I actually had to get the metal plate taken out of my arm. That was when I was about nineteen, twenty, and um, they prescribed the doctors prescribed me opioids. And um, who I was with at the time, uh, in a relationship with, was like, "Oh, well, you can snort those," and that's when my addiction, you know, really started to begin.
1: Let me ask you this: From that first experience to say when you uh, went over that line into addiction, how long had you been using before you realized, "Hey, I got a problem"?
2: Oh, it was a it was a while. Um, I would say my breaking point would have been in 2019, and that's when I had the realization because I thought that I could, because I was being prescribed opioids, I didn't think that I had a problem. So, um, yeah,
1: I, I, and I think that's common. I, I know even on my, I'm a opiate addict myself, and and I remember in the early days that was my ju- justification too. Is well, if a doctor's prescribing it to me, mm-hmm. however, it, they usually gave me a thirty day supply, and when I took them all in two days, yeah. you know, uh, but I I would still convince myself I was doing the right thing. What, what was that moment? What was that realization you, ca- you, you called it that, hey, I'm in trouble? This has gotten out of hand?
2: So, um, I mean, that was at the point where I lost my son. I was, you know, I couldn't get opiates anymore, so I was, I switched to meth. It was cheaper, um, easier to get considering who I was with, you know, was selling, using, and um, I, I was just in complete darkness and I just couldn't take it anymore I, you know whenever I tried to kill myself was like that point of like I have a problem this is bad and you know even before losing my son or right at the time when I lost my son I didn't think I had a problem I was still lying to myself and everyone else
1: uh when you say lost your son do, do you care to elaborate like what uh, did you have family there was a dcs like uh, w- when you say that what does that mean
2: so um in february of 2019 my i was supposed to go out to eat with my parents and that didn't happen i didn't want them knowing where i lived and i overslept they ended up coming to the door um and mind you this this home was not a home it didn't have a roof it didn't have a toilet i was having my son live in a roach infested you know double wide and my parents came to the door they called the cops and um they were they were like Caitlin what what are you doing and so they took Draven they asked me if I wanted to go with them I told them no because I was too scared so he ended up starting to live with my parents and further down they got full custody of him um and I wasn't allowed to see him or be a part of his life, which that's different today. Mm -hmm.
1: So at at that point when that happened, would you say that's the lowest point of your addiction was when that happened?
2: That was the start of it. Mm -hmm. The lowest part was, I would say, a couple months after he was gone. um, That's when it started getting really bad. Um, I was in an abusive relationship that he was you know, beating me, um, lying to me, a very narcissistic, abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it made me more insane than the meth did. And, um, I, I was alone for a couple of weeks and with my thoughts, it just wasn't, it wasn't a pretty sight.
1: And at that point, obviously, you know, uh, you're on here because of your experience. So, is that the point when you reached out for help when you were contemplating su- suicide? And um, it, it sounds like at that time you'd lost hope that things could mm-hmm. be different. And I, and I understand how it is. You know, the one thing that you were that was kind of motivating you to hope for something better, you know, uh, got taken. And that's uh, you know, for a parent, that's devastating. That realization that that someone else is better suited to take care of your child. Um, and and do you, let me ask you this, as far as like the conditions and in and, and your situation just described, was that a direct result of your chemical use?
2: Yes, yes. Um, that and then my mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I never dealt with my depression. Um, now looking back on my life, I knew I had depression as early as eight years old. Um, my parents didn't really believe in medication or getting help by a doctor. They thought God was going to take care of it. I believe different. I believe He gives us tools. Um, and so my depression and the lack of love that I received as a child, I, I feel more like I was bought love instead of given love, so I seeked love in all the wrong places. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this view of relationships that I was supposed to get with somebody that I could fix and control and that's what I that's ultimately what led me to that breaking point. Mm.
1: I I noticed that you use the term insane so looking back you know a lot of times in recovery we talk about insanity doing Mm -hmm. the same things over and over again expecting different results but I, I think you know it's really hard for some people to grasp that you that when we're in active addiction we are insane. Uh, our actions don't make any sense, but inside, in between our ears, they do. We've mm-hmm. convinced ourselves that we uh, we know what we're doing, and, and just that the one thing I tell people a lot is like you know one of the sentences that sums up my active addiction was that I could not live with drugs. But I could not live without drugs. Right. That doesn't leave a lot of you know, direction of what I do next, you know. So and that's what my next question is, is so, you know, you kind of told us how dark it got, and you used that term as well, and that just an, an act of addiction. When was the first time you reached out for help? What what did you do? How did you go get help, you know?
2: So, um, Like I said, for the last few weeks of my addiction, I was alone, um, alone with my thoughts. And um, that was at the point in time where I knew that there was a gun in the safe. And I grabbed it and knew that it was loaded and put it to my head and started screaming out to God, like, why? Why did you leave me? Like, why am I here at this very moment? I can't do this anymore. And that's the first time that I heard God's voice say, Caitlin, I never left you. It is you who left me. And that it kind of scared me because I have never had a relationship with God. Didn't know that's I thought you were just supposed to believe in God, go to church. Um and I thought he was punishing me for all of the sins that, you know, I had committed, um, which was not the case. Um later on I realized that you've got to have a relationship. Um so, when I heard god's voice i kind of there was a couple of days in between um i ended up there i was supposed to be going to child support court um and they found out that they had cancelled or rescheduled or already had the date the court date and made their decision but I had walked downtown Cleveland, which is where I'm from, and I, somebody from my past saw me, recognized me. I can't remember who they are now, but they were like, Caitlin, is that you? And I just started bawling. And um, so it was like after this God moment, everything just started kind of falling into place. He was bringing me people from my past, or bringing me people to help me through this new journey. Um, so she ended up calling my parents, um, took me to like her workplace and we just kind of had an intervention and I got honest with them. I was like, I, I know, you know, that I'm, um, using drugs. Um, so yes, that's it. There was a lot of, you know, crying moments for both me, my mom and my dad. Um, and they were like, well, are you ready to get help? And I said, yes. Um, I ended up, going to a rehabilitation center to detox. I ended up checking myself out two days later because I was so scared. Went back to the place that I was living at. Somebody ended up coming and knocking on the door 10 minutes after I had gotten there and was like, no, like, don't do this. I can't leave Caitlin. I can't go anywhere. I am stuck in this hell of a city. I need you to do something. I need you to change change for us because we can't we're stuck here um and I just I just started listening to people that was the biggest thing was I never knew how to listen or actually hear what people were saying and understanding so I ended up going back and they were like well we don't have enough beds and I was like well I'm suicidal I'm gonna kill myself if I walk out of these doors and they immediately opened the doors and let me back in they said no more no more second chances this is it You know, you've got to wake up early in the morning, go to every single group, seven groups a day. No matter how sick you are, no matter how tired you are, you got to get up and go. And that was when, like, that resilience started. And so, yeah.
1: So how long were you there at that facility? You said detox. So Mm -hmm. how long were you there?
2: So technically you can't detox off methamphetamines. um, But I beg to differ. Um, So I was there for a week that way they could get me regulated on medication because I had meth psychosis, anxiety, depression, PTSD. Um, I was having terrible nightmares. Um, and so they had to get me regulated on medication, uh, make sure that I was stable enough to go to a re like an actual 30 day treatment center, um, and help me find a treatment center. And of course there's no resources in this town of Cleveland. So, um, I had to, Search outward, mm-hmm.
1: and then uh, so you went into you went straight from there to inpatient, right? So you went yes. to the medical. Um, you know, when you say detox, a lot of people do think alcohol, opiates, uh, but I, I think it's underestimated how what the effect methamphetamine has mm-hmm. on the body. Uh, going days without sleep, constantly muscles tense. I do think there's a period of time after you stop that. You know, the best thing for you is to be in a lockdown facility where you don't have access to, to something else, but it is, it is not a, a pretty side or easy process. So, but you already detoxed when you went to the, in, the, in, the uh, residential treatment program, mm-hmm. right? And you said you were there for 30 days?
2: 30 days, yes. So, um, and I'll even say that with it took me two years to fully recover from the meth induced psychosis. Um, there's a lot of delusions that you face, I know when I got to Nashville, it was, I was seeing people from my past and other people, I was hearing noises, and I'm sure a lot of that was PTSD too, but yeah, meth really can mess up your head bad. Mm
1: -hmm. And then, uh, so, you know, during that process, you know, I know they introduced you, I'm sure, to recovery, you know, the Mm -hmm. basic, uh, the recovery resources, and then Uh, just because I know your story so well, and I've known you for so so long, like I know that the next step, someone at some point recommended that you follow that treatment up instead of going back home, was to do sober living, is that right?
2: Yes, and that, um, so I went to the next door treatment facility for the 30 days, um, which I kind of learned, um, I mean, it was a process, so, you know, detox, you detox off whatever you're on, Then the residential treatment, like, gives you the basic tools um, to, you know, face your triggers, to have a crisis prevention plan, learn how to be patient, acceptant. They they teach you the first three steps of recovery, you know. They get you that, your foundation Mm -hmm. laid.
1: Uh, And then uh – I think um, who was it that recommended you to come to Restoration House, and why did they? why did they think it was a good fit for you?
2: So my case manager was like, "Hey, I've got this really good um, sober living program. It's a six month program. It's faith based. It's everything that you're looking for, um, because ultimately that's what I was looking for. Um, I wanted to have an, you know, all women's program where I could stay long term." Um, it'd be faith-based, and she was like, this is perfect for you, I actually know the guy that runs the program, He's a really good guy, um, and I was kind of second-guessing it because, of course, there are so many people that were like, no, you don't want to go there, they follow you around, and I was, you know, I talked to my case manager about it, and she was like, you can't listen to all those people, there's going to be something anywhere you go, but the main thing is to focus on yourself, and so I ended up saying, "Okay, let's do it." Um, that was the only place that I applied to, and I got approved the next day.
1: It's a, it's a scary process. You're mm-hmm. leaving home. You know you got a problem. You know that you want help. You're not really sure what that whole process looks like, and then you go to. Uh, and I can relate to it. I'm, I'm from a small town. I grew up in one, and when I came to Nashville, you know, the bus system it was overwhelming. I was like, "Lord, what have I done?" I don't belong in oh, this yeah. city. Uh, so I know that the the fear, but what what was it that got you to go through with it anyway? When well, I'm sure everything inside of you was like run, 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 oh, or yeah. the thoughts that well, I, you know what to do, you know what to do. You don't need all this. What what was it that got you through that?
2: Um, my my trauma um, and God, um, I kept having flashbacks of, like even now I struggle sometimes with the flashbacks of the things that have happened to me. Um, And I could, I was scared to go back home, Mm. absolutely terrified, whether, you know, it was just me making things up in my head or reality. Um, And, you know, I still kept hearing God's voice after that saying, this is what, this is the path that I'm laying for you. Trust me. Don't ask questions. Just trust me. At that point in time, like I was, I had already hit that, you know, desperation point. That I was just ready to do whatever it took. I surrendered before I even knew what surrendering was in recovery, and I was just ready for something different. So I continued to follow other people's directions.
1: And, and that's the miss, that's the ingredient. I, I, I teach in the jails a couple times a week, I do a lot of interviews for the program, you know, and it's come up and fast. Well, how do you know who makes who don't? You don't. But there is one that I look back at all the people that's been successful that I still associate with now and that I know their recovery story when they entered recovery and, and where they're at now is that is the one missing that's the ingredient, desperation. And you mm-hmm. hear that in, you know, uh when you describe that time in your life, you hear that desperation. All you knew is you didn't want where you come from uh and you know that is a gift I, I'll tell you that now that because I spent many years in active addiction because I didn't I didn't have that blessing of desperation yet but when I did uh it gave me what I need to do whatever it took go to any links as they say but I hear you know step one two and three and everything you're saying you know so whoever helped you with your foundation sounds like they did a a thorough job that you knew your life was unmanageable, that you were powerless over your addiction, and that you came to believe a power greater than yourself could restore you to Sandy. And then you made that decision to turn your will over to your higher power. Whatever you got for me, I'm gonna do.
0: So I'm curious, a lot of what you're talking about so far is your response to an addiction, like everything you had to do was to, to get you into recovery. I'm curious if you have a definable moment where you started preparing for your future. Or like you started preparing for a journey of sobriety instead of a response to an addiction.
2: Okay, I gotcha. Um, So I think it was after I got to Restoration House is when I started thinking about future and goals. I had heard from my first sponsor that you need to have the small goals And then you need to have your big goal. Your small goals need to be easily obtainable within a short amount of time. And then you've got your big goal that needs to be obtained one to five years or so. Um, And that's when I started really thinking about what I wanted. Um, You know, I was still very acceptant um, and just wanted what God wanted for my life. And I didn't know what that looked like. Um, But ultimately, My biggest goal was to get my son back full-time. And I knew I was going to need to, you know, have a stable job. I was going to have to be mentally stable myself. Um, I would need to have a home and a car. And even though those things at the time looked almost impossible, I knew I had to start somewhere. So that's how it got started, was just thinking about, okay, i got to get better for me so I can get better for my son because he needs me.
1: At what point did that become a hope? Because, it, it, you know, we were talking about the place you're in. What, at what point during that process did you start to actually hope that you could be part of his life, be, a, you know, a parent? Uh, that you could actually – I guess I'm asking when could you see that actually being a possibility?
2: Whenever I – this program – helped me go back home, not alone, with somebody um, to get at least my visitation rights back. Um, It had been a year since he had been completely out of my life. I was still able to talk to him once a week on the phone, um, but other than that, you know, I wasn't allowed to see him. So once I went home, saw the judge, and I had like this binder in my hand of full of things that I had accomplished Um, just being in recovery. She was like, Caitlin, I I don't need that book. She was like, I can clearly see that you are doing absolutely fantastic. And at that point in time, she was like, you can have your son back if you want to. And, you know, I had to tell her, whoa, hold up. You know, I've still got a long way to go. I, I want this, but for right now, I just want to be able to see my son once a month, come down, you know, put some effort into being in his life. And um, she was like, absolutely. And whenever you're ready, you can just come back, petition your rights back, and you're more than welcome to have him whenever you can have a, whenever you have your own home and a car and have your life together. And that was that spark of hope that I needed to be like, okay, now I know I can do this. It's going to take some time, and I'm. that was the hardest part is just being patient um, because, you know, I get so excited. I just, you know, being able to see him once a month and see how happy he is of how much effort that I'm putting into him, I know he can really see that love, so being patient is really hard.
0: Yeah. Chris, you said something to me yesterday about uh, – Something along the lines, and I'll let you explain what you were talking about yesterday about being in a relationship, and when you think you're ready, you're probably not ready, and when you're okay being alone, you're more, you're, yeah, I'm going to let you take it from there.
1: Yeah, my very first sponsor, uh, long-term, one that I'd kept for a long time, I I was talking about leaving the halfway house, and I may have told you this before, but but he had told me that when it was okay for me to stay then it was a possibility that I could go. But when I it was not okay for me to stay, then I probably needed to hold off. And and I have taken that and applied it to everything with the relationships. When I got to a point that I was okay with not being in a relationship, that I was okay just being by myself, then maybe I was ready for a relationship. If I couldn't do that, then it was something I needed. So it worked with halfway. And and that's the great thing about recovery. All the stuff I don't have any original material. I, I've stole shit. The whole time, and they say it's okay. I can pay it forward, but you know, all this stuff isn't just this, you know, <laughs> great stuff I come up with. I just I hear all these people saying these things, you know. And usually, the first time I hear it, I'm like, "You're full. You don't know me," you know. And then, you know, a year or two years down the road, I'm telling somebody else the same thing, and I remember it, you know. But but yeah, that's that's been a common rule I apply to my life, but relationship, you know vehicles anything like when I'm when I'm content where I'm at then maybe I can look at improving so
0: Caitlin that kind of sounds like what you're talking about
2: which is funny that y'all say that because somebody in this program actually told me that and I've I've taken it to heart ever since you know I think that's a vital part of my life
1: uh, if you don't mind, I would like just touch because the reason why is because so many people struggle with mental health issues. Co-occurring disorders is very common, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's difficult because when you've used drugs, alcohol for so long, it has an effect on your, you know, we, we all, you know, from your your endorphin production, serotonin, like it has an effect on you mentally and physically. So, and it takes a while to recover, even staying clean and sober. there's a process of healing that goes on inside the body and mind but you know so once you sort through that a lot of times we do have mental health issues I know for myself that I look back at all my failed attempts at you know staying clean and sober my mental health issues played a big part in that Mm -hmm. uh you know especially depression I share that you know chronic depression was a big obstacle for me and um you know, and it, it didn't go away just because I got clean and sober. And and that was a big adjustment for me. You know, when everything's going good and I wake up and there's this dark cloud over me and I don't understand why everything's good and it won't go away. Um, so if you would, like, what have you done to, to you know, deal with those issues so that they're not a problem like in the state they were in the beginning?
2: Um. So... I was given the medication, it was prescribed medication when I was in detox. I continued to take all that even after I got to Restoration House and probably for about a year and a half after. Um, So eventually I got to a point to where, and this is just me and, you know, and my story, um, I didn't want to be chemically dependent on medication. Um, So I decided with my doctor to wean off. Um, I thought I had enough tools to be able to handle, handle my mental health, um, which was therapy, sponsor meetings, um, just staying actively in my recovery. Um, and so I got off all of my medications, and you know, eventually, after I'd say about another year and a half, I just, you know, was starting to get depressed again I was getting very negative and that's just not me I'm very go with the flow type person Um, have a lot of joy in my life but I could see that that joy was somebody else told me that hey you don't have joy in your life like you used to Um, so I ended up going back to the doctor and just getting back on my antidepressant Um, which has been a game changer still for me. Um, And I've had to come to the realization that sometimes, you know, medication is necessary. And it is for me, especially when it comes to my depression, because it can get pretty out of hand at times. Um, But even today, not only do I have that medication, you know, I'm still doing therapy. um, And I have a LADAC supervisor that I can talk to. Um, there's just so many people in my life that I can go to, and that's the most important part: is staying out of my head and out of isolation.
1: Um, you had mentioned, um, you know, that it was family that stepped in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, can you can you tell me what that relationship's like now uh, that now that you're still in the process? Like one thing I want to stress is it is a marathon, not a sprint. You've you've learned Absolutely. that firsthand, and that this is a process. You know, recovery is a process, and uh, you know, and it definitely sounds like. And I and I know you personally, so I know the effort that you continue, uh, that you the effort you put into being the best version of yourself that you can be, and mm-hmm. and always being open to correction and growing even more. But what is that? You know, because that, that's tough. You know, you're supposed to meet your parents; they show up and see the conditions that you're lit, see the full extent of where you know, you adapt to, they have to get involved, and, you know, it's tough for everyone, you Mm -hmm. know, always the people that hold us accountable, they, they, you know, sometimes they they get made out to be the bad guy, and then once we get better, we see how important, so could, do you mind to tell us kind of what that relationship is like now, a few years down the road?
2: Yeah, absolutely, um, I will say it's a lot better than it has ever been. I, I used to hate my parents, and um, used to hate the things that they've done, but it was when I got to step eight and nine, well, even step four, um, I, you know, of course, wrote them down on my resentment list. Um, but then when I got to step eight and step nine, I was able to actually have that conversation with them, like, okay, I apologize for my faults. Um, and whether I said it or not, I forgave them and at that point in time I was like free and it felt so good to be able to finally forgive them not have that resentment not wish that they would die one day and it was that bad um but today in the present moment you know they I can tell they love me I can tell they're proud of me and I've never been able to tell that before um and I think it's because I finally found a purpose for myself um I'm, I do have independence. I can think on my own and I don't need, you know, anyone to tell me what to do. Um, and it's funny cause my mom even sometimes will say, Hey Caitlin, I need your help with this situation or, you know, so it's been, it's been pretty amazing to see the relationship, how it started and how it ended. It's gotten a lot healthier.
1: And it, you know, I, you know, I could sit and talk to you for, for hours, you know, recovery is just such a deep subject, you know, it, it isn't, and that's what Trey had mentioned in the intro, you know, it, it's, you know, it's not just how bad my addiction is, how I got in recovery, and how great it is, there is a lot in between there mm-hmm. that we experience, we, you know, we get clean and sober so we can work on ourselves, right. you know, because uh, at the end of the day, that's, was my biggest resentment, was me, you know. Uh, you know just guilt shame you know what what be it but so we went through just kind of um uh, finish up the story so you went to sober living you lived you lived at restoration house you had mentioned uh someone from the program had even take you to who was that I, if i'm not mistaken that was pastor tina mitchell that took you to court that day right it was She's yes it the was the founder and uh Code or uh, executive director of Crossbred. She she's good like that. <laughs> she she uh, is always looking for opportunities to help people. Mm-hmm. You know, and and like I told you before, that our other guests have been men, but we do have a men and women's program. We do try to keep them separate except for program functions uh so uh we we do offer programs for each one but so you went through program can you tell us a little bit about what's your life today like do you live on your own do you have your own place
2: I do actually didn't think that would ever happen but yeah I do
1: do do you have a vehicle I do (laughs) and I'm just naming these stuff these things off because you said I got to get this this and this was years ago and Mm -hmm. then and you said you mentioned you work at Cumberland Heights what's your position there now
2: so I'm an administrative assistant, but working as an administrative assistant, I get to assist the clinical programs. So with me be, be trying to become a LADAC, I can fill in as a case manager, help the counselors. I can do groups. So I have a lot of availability as an administrative assistant to be able to get that experience that I need and help.
1: So uh, and for
0: those of us who don't know what LADAC stands for?
2: Licensed Drug and Alcohol Counselor. Thank
0: you. <laughs>
1: And and I do want to clarify that. So that is a minimum of a three year process. It, it can be longer. There's six thousand supervision hours. There's you know there's uh, classes and things. And and you are currently in laid act training. Correct. Uh, and then also I would like to mention you're also already a certified you know CPRS right. Yes. You've already. Uh, uh, got that certification. So I, I just, you know, I, I want, you know, people to know, like, yeah, you heard where I come from, but this is where I'm at today. Uh, you know, so uh, all those things that you set out and you said I needed to get done, you've been able to get them done. So, you know, I, I think that's just as important, you know.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and
1: I'm sure you have even more goals today. You said you were married. Uh, take It's a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. I know the person personally. personally yeah. yeah, I do have a good relationship with him. I know that he uh, adores you. So, and uh, you know, we're just everybody around you that's known you for these past few years. You're you're just such a beacon of hope. I know you sponsor some of our women here in an attempt to give back, and I. I I know you get you've you led some groups for the program from time to time. And I, and I want to stress that. Like, yeah, you, you did graduate. You, you, you were alumni. You were a staff member. Then you moved on on your own. But you're still giving back. You're staying connected because those are the people that make it. Absolutely. That, that stay connected and continue to carry that message to other addicts and alcoholics. So, you know, if there's – let me ask you this. We'll sum this, the interview up. I hope to have you on again in the future, because I think you have a lot to to offer people in a similar situation, but if there's a young woman that's started out where you you did, like children, uh, addiction has begun to run rampant, doesn't know what to do, is there just something that you would tell that person?
2: First off, that they are loved, and that I love them, and it's going to get better, and just don't give up. There's what you're looking for is just right around the corner. All you need to do is surrender. Just surrender and follow the direction of recovery and your higher power.
0: Do you have like a a guiding hope, a quote, something like that, that you tend to share with people or that that you follow, whether that's a person, a quote, a rule, anything like that?
1: recovery sayings or anything yeah you know one of the one million one-liner cliches we have in recovery it works if you work it Uh,
2: the serenity prayer i do say that often especially when i'm driving um god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference it's been very vital for me
0: well I think that's that can be a guiding hope for for anyone not just people in recovery. Absolutely. Um I mean it's something that is is important in my life as well.
1: Absolutely. Recovery taught me a new way to live, you know. Uh it was like a reparenting process for me. So I you know i have been clean and soap for years, but I'll tell you this, I still use that blueprint to get through day to day and and from people that I I interact with it they they believe the same so well thanks for coming on and telling your story I hope we get you on some more in the future if you thanks have the time me. and uh you know it's just you know I Trey and I talk about you know people's stories are so important they're so impactful and I know in my own early recovery it was listening to those stories that got me to hang in there one more day
0: absolutely In our next episode, Caitlin will be joining us again, telling us a little bit about how she continues to serve the recovery community here in Nashville. Thank you, Caitlin, for joining us today. Thank you to our listeners, and we look forward to you joining us next time.